Welcome to the Andrew Price Podcast, the podcast for artists wanting to learn techniques and habits to improve their game. That is the tagline I'm going to use for this. I uh, figured it needed a tagline. Um, the topic for this podcast is going to be how to learn 3D effectively. Um, normally, well, I've done it for one episode, but I want to kind of keep doing it. Normally, I would take your questions that you send in to me, and then I would answer them like we did on the last episode. Um, there weren't that many good questions that came in the last week. Um, really, only a few of them, and none of them really that good. So... Um, <laughs> Apologies to anyone who did send in and now has realized I'm not a fan of it. But um, but yeah, you can send in your question, blenderguru.com forward slash podcast question, and you'll get a Dropbox folder and you just drop in your video question and then I will answer it um, maybe in the next episode or after that. Um, but anyways, this episode is about how to learn 3D art effectively because I think, um, I think it's something that I isn't discussed well enough, right? Like the 3D field is, art in general is expansive, right? Meaning that the more you know about it, the more you realize there is to know, <laughs> right? Like many things, it just expands. So you think like 3D is a thing with some meshes and some textures, and then you get into it and you realize there's topology, there's sculpting tools, there's texture painting tools, there's mountain generation, there's rigging, there's proceduralism, there's, it just expands, right? And I don't think that will slow down. I think that I will probably die and you will probably die one day. Um, not learning half the stuff there is to learn out there. Um, I'll be lying in my deathbed going, I should have learned Houdini. Why did I put it off? <laughs> right. It'll be on version a hundred and something. Um, but, uh, that's okay. Right. Um, because that is, I think is one of the biggest myths of 3d that you need to learn everything that like, Oh, I'm, I'm really good at sculpting and rigging and retopology and things, but Oh, I, I guess I should learn procedural. I, I, I should pick up substance designer because that's what, you know, people are using and I should learn how to make my own textures. These, these skill sets, these other little things you can, you can learn, they will definitely help you. And I can vouch for that as sort of being a Jack of all trades, artist myself and because I have to teach it for Blender Guru, it's like people send in a request. Why don't you do talk about textures in Blender? And I'm like, ah, damn it. Um, it. It is helpful to, ex, you know, broaden your horizons. And like, I'm learning 2D now as well, because I want to sort of broaden it further. It'll help you. However, it is not, uh, the, the results are not uniform. So what I mean by that is um, if you're familiar with the Pareto principle, which is uh by a guy who discovered that in his garden, the peas that were growing, the little little peas, 80% um, of the output of the peas that he got came from 20% of the stalks. Um, which by the way, confused me for a long time, the 80, 20 thing, because I thought that the 80 and the 20 were in one graph, but that's actually, they're separate graphs. It's like 80% of the results, meaning there was another 20% of results that didn't, uh, came from 20% uh, of the stalks. So the stalks is a separate pie chart. Anyways. Point being is that results are not uniform. Um, uh, you could learn Gaia, which is, if that's how you even pronounce that, why did they spell it G-A-E-A -E if they wanted people to say it out loud at some point, um, which is mountain generation software. You could learn that, right? If you're getting into 3D because you might need mountains at some point, but um, it would not 
have the same impact to your artwork as if you use the same time just learning how to do lighting well, right? Lighting is far more useful, has a far bigger impact on a render than an obscure piece of software. So there are many things that you can learn and they are not at all uniform in any way. Um, and I think that unfortunately that is the way that a lot of, um, a lot of, let me check that the recording's going, a lot of teachers do it, right? If you go to school or even if you just follow tutors on YouTube, um, they, I, I, and I think it's because they think I know a lot because I teach it, right? They, they usually know a lot about the topic, all the, the variety of areas, and they think therefore my students should know it, right? Um, which is a complete, it, it's a mistake. There's a great quote by Martin H. Fisher who said, um, a good teacher needs to know all the rules, a good pupil, the exceptions. <laughs> so uh, in the book by Tim Ferriss, The 4-Hour Workweek, um, he, he talks largely about, I mean, that's kind of the whole principle of The 4-Hour Workweek that sort of went viral and blew up a decade ago, um, was that, yeah, like the work hours that you're putting, like most of the stuff you're doing is not generating an output, right? 80% of it's just kind of wasted output. You should be focusing on the 20% that does count. Um, and he, he talked about an example where he, um, he entered a Chinese kickboxing tournament and he had four weeks to learn it, right? And it was like a dare from a friend or something. And so he focused on two um, two rules in the in like the, the way that the kickboxing was done um, and just focused on those two things. The first one was that uh, weigh-ins were done the day prior to the, the competition, meaning that you could uh, use methods to like dehydrate yourself to go at a lower weight range and then rehydrate yourself the next day to perform at a higher weight range, which I think is pretty common now in MMA, I believe. I don't, I know nothing about MMA, but I'm pretty sure I've heard that. But anyway, so that was something he used to basically perform at a weight class, like three classes above it. And then the second one was that there was a rule in Chinese kickboxing, which was that if somebody falls off the platform three times in a round, then they win. Uh, sorry, the <laughs> not they win, the opponent wins. So all he focused on was uh, how can I get my my weight up to the like dehydrate and then and then rehydrate and then how can I get my opponent off the platform? And that was all that mattered. He just had to like stand near the edge or I don't know what it was, let people run at him and then sort of move out the way. I don't know, um, which didn't make the judges very happy um, that they had this foreigner coming in there exploiting things. Um, but he won, right? He, he won the competition, which is a crazy story. Um, and that's totally fine to do, by the way. That's that's kind of like sports is done. It's always done that way. Um, it also it gave the example of like the, the, the Frosby flop, which was, um, if you ever watch high jumping, the runner runs along and then they jump and then they leap over with their back and they sort of do this backflip kind of thing over it and then they flop onto the map. Um, it didn't used to be that way in high jump. It used to be, used to run up and then like jump with your leg or something or jump dive over. I can't remember how they used to do it. But then this guy came in like the 1960s or something and just did this crazy jump, leaped off the other foot and did this spin around thing and cleared the bar, like like exceeded the the record at the time. And a few years later, the like, yeah, it was like 13 of the 16 athletes copied him and did the frosty flop. Now I think it's just like standard, right? So that the ways that we think are the correct way to do things are really just kind of like a mindset. Like we think that that's what you need to do in order to, to get the thing. Anyways, point is, um, 
the 3D field is expansive. There's so much to learn. And if you ask a teacher, what do I need to learn? They'll write out like a 20 page sheet that'll take you 10 plus years to learn. And it's not helpful because those results are not uniform. The output is not uniform. So there, uh, I think it's better to rephrase it as a question, um, which was actually um, a question that was taught in the four hour chef. Another one by Tim Ferriss. I've talked about this many times, but um, he talked about breaking down a skill into something of like learnable units. And the way to figure out all these things is to talk to professionals and instructors, but ask them just the right questions in order to figure out what is the distilled elements that I need to learn. And so there's one question that is sort of the overarching framework that I think is is the best question. And that is that if you had to train me for a competition and there was a million dollars on the line and I only had four weeks to train, what would the training look like, right? And if you asked a teacher this, like, how can I learn 3D in four weeks? They'll probably laugh you out of the room, like, oh, it's impossible. You can't learn that, you know, yada. But if you put a gun to their head and say, teach me, damn it. Um, <laughs> they'd come up with a list very quickly, a one page. This is what I think you should learn, right? Uh, because you can, it, it, it forces you to think of like, get rid of the nice to haves. Like, yeah, it would be nice if you learned some rigging. It'd be nice if you learned some retopology and baking and blah, to just what actually matters. And um, so I asked myself that question, right? I've been doing 3D for 15 years. How would I train you? If you had four weeks to train for a 3D competition, you're gonna go against a bunch of artists. I don't know, you don't know them. Um, I don't know what their skill levels are at, but you only have four weeks to train and you've never used 3D before. As impossible as that sounds, gun to my head, how would I train you for those those four weeks? So this is what it would be. Um, yeah, I'm gonna outline it. I would say, first of all, you need to focus on like what what is the outcome of the competition? What is it based on? And let's say it is based on sort of making wide art that is that gets likes on Instagram or ArtStation or things, which I generally think, you know, following likes is not a good rule for your life. Um, but I generally think it's not a bad rule for art because it gives you very real feedback that is otherwise subjective, right? You know, you show an art piece to your mom and she's like, oh, it's amazing. And then you show your friend and they're like, mm, not good. You show it to another friend and they're like, eh, it's okay. You know, this subjective feedback is kind of hard to make a decision on, but following likes for something like ArtStage and Instagram, actually it's kind of helpful because you can, the, you know, based on the stats that you've received numbers of likes, whether a larger amount of people than normal liked it or not. So let's say it is like-based, right? You have to make something that the general population is gonna be judging and they're gonna click likes on the things that they like. Um, so how would, you, how would you get to the top of the art station board? I generally think the stuff that does really well is characters, okay? That's no surprise, it's no secret to anyone. If you go to ArtStation, you look on Instagram, you look at the top artists, what are they doing? Characters. Problem is, characters are extremely, extremely punishing to do. Um, there are a few things as disheartening as trying to learn to sculpt a character for the very first time. I, as I said, been doing 3D for 15 years. I just picked up sculpting six months ago, did a character did two characters, did three characters, and it was so punishing. Um, it's really, really hard to do because your eye 
your your human brain is just biologically wired to detect problems in the face. When things don't look right, when an eye is a little bit droopier than it should be, or the nose is a little bit shorter than it should be, or the lip is, and then it's just like not even the position, but the fault, like how much volume is under the skin that pushes it out or in and out. And there's so much, and it just takes, I think, uh, a lot longer to learn to do um, 3D characters than other things like a hard, like if you were to model um, a, f- a phone or a computer mouse or just a, an everyday object, you could get things wildly wrong and your brain wouldn't be able to really tell it. It's not going to be stand out as wildly wrong. So um, that's why it is good to start with inanimate objects. So um, I think that if you were to enter into a car competition, you had four weeks, the, the topic that you'll be focusing on would be environments with a character with their back turned, okay? So very simple framework, environment, an interesting looking environment with a character with their back turned to the camera. Uh, Having a character in it present is just helpful so that, I mean, it just helps art pieces generally um, connect with a viewer because they can sort of imagine themselves looking at the scene, inside the scene, something like that. So that's that's the point of that, okay? So you want to just look at creating environments that can have a character in it. Okay, now it sounds like a lot, but we're gonna break it down. I'm gonna show you how you can get there within four weeks. So this is the way you do it. You've never used 3D software before. Uh, Guess what? You're gonna be using Blender. Um, (laughs) I'm biased because that is what my channel is based around, but also because it is free and it is actually becoming almost an industry standard and in its own right, which is amazing, which is great. Anyways, you're gonna start with Blender and what's the best Blender beginner tutorial series out there? Apparently it is my donut tutorial series, not to toot my own horn, but millions of people have gone through it and they've gotten results from it. So the reason I recommend starting with that is you have to start somewhere. And I actually designed that course to be based around the Pareto's principle of 80-20. The the, the areas of Blender that you're, like the 20% of Blender that you're actually gonna be using the most amount of time on um, is modeling, it's lighting, it's texturing, et cetera. And it's based around that. So it walks you through what the interface is and how to use this and that. And it's all in one sort of tight little package. And then by the end of it, you should have a donut. So you start with that, obviously. Um, Now, by the way, for this four weeks, this is a full-time job for you, okay? You can be working six days a week, maybe eight to 12 hours a day just doing 3D for this challenge, okay? That should go without saying, but let's just get that out there. So this donut tutorial, you're spending every day on it. Let's say you get it done in two or three days. Fantastic. Next, when you finish that, you need to create something similar to a donut by yourself. Now, this is crucial for a few reasons. Um, One, it's to uh, solidify what you've just learned and put it into practice and realize what you got wrong and make a mental note of what you need to learn in the future. But it also is helpful for your brain to understand that you're not just watching something and doing the thing, but you also need to be processing that information because you're going to need to apply it practically, which I think is important because a lot of people fall into this trap of only being able to follow tutorials. And that's a problem when they go to do their own thing eventually down the road and they fail because their brain hasn't gotten to a point of like truly understanding what's going on so that they can do it later on. So forcing yourself to do a practical test at the end of a tutorial um, will, will help solidify that. Okay. So you've now made a donut, the coffee cup, whatever the sprinkles on it, the plate, and you have also created, um, something similar, a cookie, a cupcake, doesn't have to be food, but 
something small-ish that is based off those principles. Well done. Good job. Um, now, the next thing I recommend starting with lighting. So learning the theory of lighting. Um, because lighting is one of those things that if you learn it and you know how to do it well and what goes into making it uh, work and why it works, um, you can vastly improve your render. Um, most renders that fail, in my opinion, like the ones that beginners create, I think if you just gave me that file, I could improve it immediately, just touching lights only. Um, make it dark, start with a dark scene, and then add in lights to highlight the areas that look good and hide the areas that don't. So knowing how to uh, emphasize certain areas as well to alter the composition and, uh, and, and also hide the parts that don't look good, right? Like that's just sort of like an easy hack that you can do um, if you know how to use lighting well. And it's not just like uh, what color is the light or how strong is it? It's like how close is the light? So all this stuff um, I put together, of course, it's called the beginner's guide to lighting. Beginners, how to light. I'll put it, by the way, all the stuff I'm going to be talking for this little one month curriculum, I'll put a link to that in the description. Um, it'll be like a one page thing with links that'll walk you through all the, uh, sorry, that'll take you to the tutorial as well. So anyways, um, you follow this course, it's free, it's on YouTube, it's five episodes and it's all theory based with examples that show um, how and when to use light and what light does to the scene, etc. with examples. So I would highly recommend that course. Then you need to put it into practice. So go back to your donut or your cookie or your cupcake or whatever it is that you made and improve the lighting. But don't just improve it once, come up with one variation of it and then create variation two. Scrap the lighting, put new lighting in it and do something different. Variation three, then variation four and do five. I want you to do five variations of the lights for that scene. Now, this is important for many reasons. Um, one, just good for idea generation and just kind of discover and play with lights and, 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 and ideas. But it's also a very good creative habit to learn which is that your first ideas, ideas generally suck. The first way that you lit the cookie, the cupcake, whatever it is, it's probably not the best way. It's just the idea that seemed easiest to you at the time. It's only through churning through and trying many, many ideas, usually by your fourth, fifth, um, or if you really want to take it to the extreme, 10, 10th, 11th, 12th um, example, that you end up finding things that really work. It's after exhausting all the ideas that you thought would be good, um, and then start daring into these weird, ob obscure stuff that you start to go like, oh, actually, I mean, it's not great, but I like this part about it. Changing that light to be pink created this interesting look, right? So it's it's that is a is a habit that you can kind of learn adjacent to that whilst you're learning about lighting. So well done, you've now learned a donut, a cupcake, lighting. Next materials. So the next important thing is, uh, yeah, the, the next theory component of making good looking images is how do materials actually work? Because you've got so many sliders to play with. You've got color and that's all you know. <laughs> but then you've also got, you got spec, you've got roughness, you've got anisotropic, you've got uh, emission, you've got transmission, you've got all the values in the world. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're just going to be pulling and pulling things and you're going to be breaking materials that are impossible. Like it's impossible to have a material that has zero reflection, but a lot of artists will do that if they don't understand the principles of materials. So I have a video called the principled BSDF, how to make photorealistic materials in Blender. Again, click the link in the description. You'll see the full curriculum there. 
it'll take you to that tutorial, but that will explain, yeah, like how roughness works, right? And what roughness does to a reflection, how it changes the Fresnel, um, energy conservation, you can't have more energy exuded from it than what it received. Um, a bunch of little things. It's basically, it's all put into, it's one video, it's, it's, it's framed around the new shader that came out at the time, the principal BSDF, because that's all you need to learn uh, for, for materials basically is using that one shader. So learning that will give you the fundamentals of how material, good materials actually work. And it is important to the next step which is the next tutorial you're gonna be following, which is my Anvil tutorial. So really the point of this tutorial, I mean, I'm recommending all my videos because I happen to know what's in them and I know which parts they teach and which parts they don't, um, but you could substitute it with anything which is uh, creating a game-ready asset. So when I say game-ready, it just has to be like textured, um, something small that you've got a finished asset that then you could bring into somewhere else because that's gonna be important to your, your environment that you create. So. Um, the anvil, it teaches you how to model something. It's more complex than the donut um, by a long ways. Um, you've got like some tracting elements, you've got curved shapes, you've got things, and it was deliberately designed to be an interesting shape that gives you some modeling challenges. And then importantly, it covers texturing. So how do you actually texture paint in Blender? How do you also sculpt? So there's a little bit of sculpting in there um, and then there's baking it into a texture if you wanted to go down that route as well. Um, but really the whole point of it is to just give you more modeling challenge, introduce you to textures and um, yeah, because you've learned the principal BSDF stuff, you'll know you, you won't just be farting around, pulling and pulling sliders around, etc. Now, when you finish that one, guess what? Just like what you did with the donut, you're gonna be making your own thing that is similar to that. So you learned an anvil, so now maybe make an axe or a, a hammer. I'm just trying to think. It doesn't have to be related to an anvil, but something small <clears throat> that is textured and you could achieve within two to three days. And that's kind of important because a big problem I see a lot of people have is they, they go, they watch the anvil tutorial and they go, great, I'm going to make a spaceship. <laughs> uh, you're not. You are going to blunder around in the dark for a few days, get frustrated, and then end up on Reddit, like you do all the time. So you have to pick something that is achievable, that you've just learned, that is something new related to that. So really think about it. Don't just go like, ah, oh, and like go to Google Images and click the first thing that you found. Like really think about it, because if it's too hard, you could fail. And not only does that waste time, but it also kind of screws up your motivation to continue because you have to keep coming back, right? So yeah, that's the, uh, that's the, okay. So you've done the hammer. Next up after that is, oh, what is it? Okay. I was trying to memorize everything and I, I've, I've exhausted the limits of my, okay. So it is composition. All right. Next up, aesthetics, composition. Um, composition is another area just like lighting, just like materials, that is going to have a large impact on your final render. And um, a lot of people do it very poorly. I mean, most beginner images just have a lot of empty space. They have conflicting elements. They have like, uh, like a bright window and a bright other thing and everything's bright and your eyes don't know what to look at because it's sort of fighting. Um, composition, my video on understanding composition. Again, links to all this uh, in the description in one page. Um, it's, yeah, it explains how to make a pleasing looking image that is readable. So guiding lines, um, sort of design principles using shapes. Um, it's, it, it's some short things that you can do. And just, even if you don't understand everything at the stage, because of course you won't, it'll help you understand sort of how to, yeah, 
how to make why certain images are more pleasing to the eye than you might not have other underst otherwise understood. Um, and then guess what? Practical, of course, you're going to be using what you've just learned to improve either your donut, your anvil, your hammer, or your axe, or whatever it is that you modeled, um, to try and improve it using composition and lighting. And again, come up with five variations for it. So change the camera angle, change the position, change the aspect ratio of the image. So it doesn't have to be just widescreen. A lot of beginners just stick to the widescreen. It can be tall. It can be whatever aspect ratio you want. So um, yeah, play around with it, create five variations. Bam, well done. Um, next is a solo project. So you've learned really sort of the basics of making any asset. Um, yeah. Pretty much, yeah, like any sort of small-ish asset, it's modeled, it's textured, etc. <clears throat> Solo project. So um, pick something that you think is achievable based on what you know. And at this point, you should know that there are things that are hard to do and there are things that you could possibly achieve. So pick something small to do that uh, that you could achieve. And I want you to replicate a photo one-to-one. -one. So this I've talked about in previous episodes is uh, it's an important skill to learn. Uh, replicating a photo one-to-one -one will not only help you in like what you need to do next and what needs to be improved, um, but it develops the, it develops uh, attention to detail, which has to be developed. Um, it's not, most beginners, um, beginning artists do not have that off the bat. Um, you develop it over time. And it's this exercise of taking a photo of something, replicating it, and then putting it directly over the top of the other one, literally in Photoshop or wherever, and just turning the layer on and off, flicking between them, it reveals so much because you're so wildly off and you had no idea that that was happening. It's almost embarrassing when you see it, but it is important because it'll help your mind go from seeing things as just kind of big shapes to things that there's actually detail and there's reasons why it doesn't work. So you go from thinking like, oh, the ax, like it's a rust, there's some rust and there's wood on the, the handle of the ax. You go to thinking like, oh no, like, the, like it's not just rust, but there's a little bit of metal in there. And it, the scale that I chose for my rust text is totally wrong. It's way too big. Um, same with the wood. And it, when you go back and forth, you have to uh, reconcile, right, internally. Why does that not look as good as the photo? And so it's very, very revealing. So um, I've talked about why I think that, like most artists should just focus on one-to-one -one replication. That's what you're going to be doing in this uh, solid project. Okay, so um, why is that keyboard popped up? Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, okay, the next one, this is sort of just like a side um, theory thing to learn, um, optimizing renders. So this is a necessary thing of 3D. Unlike 2D, when you paint, you finished, that it's done. 3D, you have to render. And uh, depending on your machine, depending, well, pretty much any machine, there's time involved in rendering. And if you don't know what is making your render take 20, 30 minutes to render, you're going to be eating up valuable time and motivation because what can you do while you're sitting there? You can't use Blender. You can't really even use your computer. It's wasted time. And there are things that you can do to have just as good a result that takes a fraction of the time. So um, I have a video on 18 ways to improve your render, render speeds. Um, I'd probably revisit it and change things today. There's a few other things, um, denoising and other areas that I'd sort of get into. But as an overarching idea, that's a great one to, yeah, just learn some ways to improve it because, um, yeah, otherwise you're just going to be wasting time while you're learning. 
And that is going to be important for the next part. So I'm, I'm assuming you've probably spent about two weeks so far or a week, week and a half, two weeks, if you were full-time just learning all this. Um, but the next part is going to be the environment. So you've now learned small assets, let's get larger. So um, the, the most challenging part of an environment, an outdoor environment is the ground itself. There's a lot going on on the ground. Uh, the assets that make up the, uh, the, the surface, the ground, that's stuff that you can download. Now, this might sound like cheating, like, oh, you wouldn't recommend, really, you're just gonna recommend like downloading some photo scanned assets? Yes. Um, <laughs> now, and that, this is the thing, photo scanning as a workflow, unless you want to do that as a skill, if you wanna get a job as a photo scanning artist, and work for a company and go out and scan shoes or whatever it needs for, for, for a game or something, be my guest. Um, but it is separate to art. It is so dry and technical really that it is separate to art. Um, and you don't need to learn it. You really don't. Um, most studios are gonna be using an asset library like Megascans. Um, they're just pulling from stuff that is out there. <laughs> so it, there's really, I mean, it's like text, like would you go out and photograph your own textures? No. So use, use photo scanned assets when you can. So anyways, the most challenging part is the ground itself. Um, and there's really two components that make up the, like make a, a ground challenging. Um, one is the displacement. So learning um, how to displace a ground so that um, you don't destroy your renders. So you need to learn about adaptive displacement. So I got a video on that called micro displacements. Again, links to all this in the description. Um, <clears throat> and then the second component of that is tiling, which is an underrated, under talked about really area of making a realistic image. Um, because yeah, if you have an environment, you have to have a material which is gonna be tiling at least a hundred meters, um, <clears throat> which a one by one meter texture is gonna be a hundred meters, hundred times tiled in just one direction, not the other. So you're gonna be noticing a tiled pattern. So that's gonna be conflicting to an end result, um, a, a pleasing end result. So I talk about that in my video, um, how to make tiling work. So um, yeah, so those two things, learning about micro displacement and then tiling. And then the second thing to that is uh, learning how to use photo scanned assets. So we actually have some amazing assets at, photo, at uh, polygon.com, um, bunch of rocks of like the highest resolution, really sharp, delit, ready to use. Um, so you can bring them in. Um, we've also got some plants. And of course there's also mega scans as well, which has an even larger selection, slightly less quality if I'm being a little honest but um, good enough, great. So just learning how to bring those in and just sort of drop them on the ground there. The point of this, I mean, really, is to just make something, right? Um, I'd actually recommend starting with a desert environment because deserts don't have grass and they tend to not really have trees, which is handy. So sticking to deserts will also limit you, put some blinders on, on uh, things that are too challenging for this four, four week progress process. So um, yeah, focus on that. Next, uh, research. So now that you've got an environment done, um, I want you to sort of understand what it is that is actually gonna be making a pleasing image because the next part we're gonna be adding characters and making kind of a nice looking image. So just spending a few hours on ArtStation or Instagram and just sort of looking at what concept artists are doing in their environments that make them look good and just writing notes. Like it can't hurt to just go there and go like, okay, interesting shapes. Um, uh, backlit lighting, um, reflections, puddles. I don't know, just writing that kind of thing. 
even if you don't understand why, it'll help you sort of, maybe you can incorporate it into an image and then discover why. Um, but yeah, generally, as I've said, it is uh, something with a character in it, which is helps the viewer put themselves in that place. Um, exploring an interesting environment, usually alien, not necessarily sci-fi alien, that's really complex, but just kind of an interesting environment with really interesting lighting and composition. Because this is, uh, that's kind of the, the aim of 3D. Like if you ever like, you know, you've been walking along the beach or the street or something like that, and the light will just, you know, it'll go down the horizon and you'll get this golden light and like half of it is in shadow because it's just below the horizon. It's got this interesting look. And then you'll see like a girl like standing on the intersection and the light is hitting the back and it's like lighting up because it's got this awesome rim lighting around the hair. And you think like, oh man, if I got a photo of that, that would make an awesome photo. And if you're real creepy, you just run up and photograph her. But, you know, photographers work around those constraints. They have to time things just right. Um, they have to get all that equipment ready, hike to a place, get everything right, get the framing right, and then wait for just the right lighting because they know when it's going to look interesting. Um, in 3D, you want to really be manufacturing that. You want to know what's going to make that interesting light, and you're going to want to try to add it in there. So like, I mean, I saw one the other day, it was like this interesting house with this really unique, like, uh, it was like at nighttime with this bright light that was sort of hitting the side of the house. It's kind of like moonlight, but kind of like a street light as well. It looked kind of otherworldly. It was sort of unusual. And it created something that you don't usually see in a photograph and therefore it has interest. So that's generally what you'd probably discover if you went on art station. You see these sort of manufactured moments of like incredible lighting or an incredible moment in time at just the right time that got it. But of course in 3D, you can do it whenever. So um, yeah, just exploring that. Um, and just spending a few hours writing notes and things. Um, but I think that's that will help you for the next part. So the next part is characters. So we're not gonna be making a character, just like a lot of movies, VFX, um, even games, they buy character models. There's a bunch of websites, render people, all those sites that offer photo scanned um, people. You could use those. However, I actually think Mixamo might be better for you. So Mixamo is Adobe's product of, um, they give you, I think like 60 different characters that you can choose from, but then a whole bunch of poses and actually full animations that is then applied to the character. So you go like pick a guy in a t-shirt and shorts and do the rolling one or the, I don't know, some stupid TikTok dance or whatever. You can pick all this and then it will, um, then yeah, you just then hit export as an FBX, you download the FBX and then you import that into Blender and you have a finished character with amazing poses because um, it was based off of, I think, um, motion capture data. So it's actually pretty accurate. And yeah, I mean, the hands can be a little janky. It doesn't really get the finger movements or anything like that. It doesn't need to be perfect. Again, going back to the 80-20 rule, you're gonna be hiding things in a way. You're gonna be positioning the camera with just the back to the camera until it works. The most important thing of this step is just figuring out what Mixamo is, taking a character, picking a pose, hitting export, bringing it into Blender, and then changing the materials because FBX, for whatever reason, when you import them into Blender, they always come in a little bit wrong. The normals are flipped or the specularity is turned off for some reason, um, or the things are just in the wrong channel. Um, so, <laughs> Uh, just learning how to do that. I mean, you could just Google, like look on YouTube, Mixamo Blender, and you'll see like a bunch of tutorials, I'm sure. 
So just learning how to correct it and get the material looking right. And then you've got a, you've got a character. Then guess what? You can add that character to your desert environment and um, use some composition and uh, what you've learned from lighting to make an interesting environment. Um, then we're, we're sort of getting to the end here. We're sort of leading up to the point of like making the final image. Um, but there's two more things that I would uh, recommend learning. Uh, the first is color. So color is it's overrated and underrated. A lot of people think that's all you need to know with art. Like if you just learn how to make colors pop, it's like, what does that even mean? Um, <laughs> but a lot of renders fail because the colors are too noisy. They're too intense. They're too saturated. The values are wrong. Um, or there's just too many colors. So I have a video talking about understanding color. Um, I should really revisit some of these old theory videos. Um, some of them are like, yeah, I think this one's six years old, this color one. It's still one of my most popular videos, believe it or not. I think the donut tutorial just dwarfed it now, finally, um, for the first time ever. But anyways, um, so I would watch that, which just talks about, yeah, color theory. Um, it talks about color schemes, why they work, uh, split complementary color schemes, etc. And that'll just help you it's not going to be this wonderful magical thing, but it'll help you stop making huge errors that could otherwise ruin a scene. So, um, so watch that and then apply it to your desert environment. Basically remove colors that are too oversaturated, undersaturated and um, any, yeah, if you've got more than three hues in there, just, just try and keep it to under three and, um, and you should be okay. Um, next, uh, post-processing. So this is sort of the final thing that can sort of help an image go from looking like a render to looking like a photo. And that is replicating imperfections and things that happen in camera. So for example, glare, glow, when, uh, if you're watching the video, when the light hits this microphone stand thing and the highlight peaks and makes this highlight for the camera, the light is creating a slight bloom around it because of, I don't what is it? <laughs> your eyes also do it, but only because of like eyelashes, but it's like, it's not bouncing around the lens. Is it? I mean, you don't really even need to understand it, to be honest. It's just the understanding of how to replicate that in Blender and when it happens, it happens to areas of, um, high contrast in otherwise low contrast areas. Um, other things to emulate barrel distortion, uh, cameras always have barrel distortion that just adds a tiny little thing that can help it noise. Every shot will have noise. So you want to learn how to denoise a shot and then add in fake noise on top of it, which sounds crazy. I know, but cameras have noise and it's important to have it. And then sharpening. So um, you probably want to do it in Photoshop, but yeah, the unsharpened filter, I have no idea why they called it unsharpened when it is technically sharpening, of course, um, but it is. And so you want to learn how to do that because it just makes, it's a really cheap and easy thing you can do that'll just, it makes renders pop, really. It adds detail and you'll be amazed with the result. Um, so learning that. And then color grading. So, I mean, a really simple one in Blender is make sure that you're not using the default no look. Um, just change it to either high contrast or medium high contrast, something like that. It's just gonna add a sort of simple S curve across it. This is just gonna like crush the shadows a little bit and uh, raise the highlights and that's kind of improve it. And then if you wanna get into, you know, changing the R, G and B and making the shadows do things, that could be a separate thing as well, which might improve it, but most people sort of overdo it. So take it easy. But those things to do with post-processing, I don't have a video that talks about each one, but I'll put the links to some that I found that could be interesting in the description for that. But again, specular highlights, barrel distortion, noise, sharpening, and color grading. Then apply that to your desert shot. 
Okay, and now at this point, it is time to put it all together in a new scene. I don't know how many you'll get done, assuming you're working full time. Maybe you plowed through this and you really stay dedicated. Maybe you've got time to do two or three full scenes. I have no idea. But um, with everything in there, you should be able to create an environment that has realistic, nice looking ground that renders well, that has a character looking at something and then photo scanned assets, which is what the industry uses. Nothing wrong with that. Um, to create an interesting environment. And then with your lighting, you should be able to make an interesting um, an interesting environment. So will you win the competition with four weeks experience having never used 3D before? I highly doubt it, but that's not the point of this, right? Um, the point of this is, is to get results fast and then expand from there, okay? Um, people will critique this, of course, and go, oh, you've left out this. Uh, you can't rush through this. You've only taught people how to follow this narrow pathway uh, to do this one thing. Yes, that's the point. Um, if you wanted to do a, expand and learn how to sculpt characters down the road, well, that's an entirely different workflow and, and skill set. But that's important to know about 3D is like a lot of schools that are sort of advertising, you know, 3D design or whatever they call it. Um, what? 3D what? There is so much 3D is used for today. It is crazy. You should, I mean, 3D is reaching a point where it's almost breaking off into its own industry with sub-industries within it. Um, and it kind of already is, right? There's Arcviz, there's, there's gaming, there's VFX. Those are the big ones. There's uh, scientific visualization. There's AR, VR. There's, uh, there's this whole subset of, of, of like... Uh, what was it I was talking about the other day on the newsletter, but Beeple talked about non-fungible tokens, making high-priced art that is digital, um, that people are now trading. Um, he sold one for $66,000, um, two of them apparently for that price, it, for something that doesn't exist. It's a token, it's a digital token. Anyways, the 3D art field is blowing up, it's exploding, and there's so many industries, and then within each of those industries, subject-specific things. It's not just gaming, but it's there's characters, there's vehicles, there's props, there's uh, design, there is layout, there is landscapes, there's environments, there's procedural. There's so much going on there that, of course, any field, like any course that you followed at a school or anything like that is only going to teach you one narrow thing. Um, and any course that attempts to try to teach everything is probably going to be wasting your time because there's no way you can teach everything in a four-year course um, to any good extent. And if you look at the results of students that come out of these places, results speak for themselves. You can't, <laughs> right? You can't do everything. You have to pick something. So that's my advice just for purely focusing on something that's going to get results and keep you interested. I think that's important as well. Um, episode two of this podcast was just talking about how to stay motivated while you fail. And just like if you picked up a game and you hit the go button and you failed and you failed and you failed and you failed and it gave you nothing in return, you quit. And that I want to, I want to, I'd love to change the art industry in some way um, to be more rewarding, like a game. Like I think there's an opportunity there to make like a gamification of 3D or 2D. 
um, to sort of reward people in the same way that games do when you do the right thing. And, you know, the, the sound effects and the light and the colors and the random uh, reward systems and like all that kind of thing. It could be gamified to make it interesting, but it's not there yet. Not even on the pathway to get there, but you can do it yourself by building um, building a system that will give you some sort of result in some sort of time frame. So that is my advice. Now, there's a few other questions that um, in the Four Hour Chef that Tim Ferriss recommended you ask instructors if you wanted to to drill deeper. I only covered one of them then, which is what is the four week curriculum to to train and get good at something. Um, but there's a bunch of other questions, so we're gonna um, we're gonna get to them. But first, there was one question which I want to answer. And that is this question by Abdul Raham. I shouldn't have tried to pronounce your name. I'm sorry. I'll just call you Abdul. Hey, Andrew. We were just thinking about this now. Do you know of any website that would allow me to make better renders faster? Ooh, you sly dog. Thank you for leading me perfectly into this advert. Polygon, make better renders faster. Um, that is the mission, that is the statement of my company, Polygon. Um, it, is, uh, it is a site which offers you textures and models um, that you can easily and quickly download and import into Blender or whatever 3D software that's compatible with 3D's Max, Maya, ZBrush um, to make better renders faster. Because I know as an artist myself that um, a lot of time is spent correcting the assets that you download. You download a rock, Wow, that's my baby screaming. You download a rock and it's the, the texture's blurry, things are stretched, and you then have to fix it, right? Or you end up don't fixing it and you just have a blurry texture across your ground plane, right? And the render suffers because of that. And when you find an asset that just works out of the box, it's immediate, it's noticeable how much better your image becomes because of it, because you can focus on the things that actually matter. So that's the idea of Polygon. Um, we have a team of 14-ish you know, people that are highly trained. We have an art director. We have high quality standards and we go out and we do the stuff that you don't have to do like photo scanning. So we recently released a whole bunch of rocks, which were, um, actually there's another one coming out at the end of this month, a couple of weeks, I guess, um, of like a bunch of beach rocks um, that are like the highest res, uh, really, really sharp detail, perfectly delit, and they are awesome. And we've got a tool that can bring them into Blender really quick as well. Oh wait, no, that toolbox is not out yet, but soon. Anyways, um, so there's that. And then we've also got a whole bunch of photo scan grounds that we recently released as well, um, which are three by three meter textures, which means you don't have to tile them as much as, uh, as I mentioned before, tiling is a big problem. You don't have to tile them very much. Um, and they're super, super sharp. And again, apologies for the baby. I'll have to uh, go and correct that. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyways, so to subscribe, go to Polygon, P-O-L-I-I-G-O-N.com so that you can start making better renders faster. And yeah, that's it. Um, that's, that's the only ad as always, really. Maybe I'll get Squarespace involved um, because they'll sponsor anything, <laughs> right? If I find like one of those tiny little channels and it's just like a guy talking into his webcam and he's like, but first, this video is sponsored by Squarespace. And I always think, why though? Does that not damage their brand? Do they not care? 
Maybe it's just literally just if you hear it enough that you just, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like a word thing. You just get into everyone's subconscious brain, you know, Coke, 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 Coke. What are you thirsty for? Hmm. I don't know. Anyways, bit of a tangent there. Now I will pause this recording for a brief second because I got to fix the baby noise. <clears throat> the joys of working from home, huh? It's, uh, it was funny at first, right? You know, when like COVID-19 happened and there was like all those videos of, you know, kids running in the background and doing things. And, and then it was almost manufactured, you know, like news stations seem to be planning it. Like, oh, look at this cute moment when the kid ran into the background. Isn't that totally random and natural? And look, we're just playing along with it. Isn't that fun? And now it's just annoying. <laughs> now it's just like, yeah, I, I just want to see, uh, um, do I, do I care? I don't know. Just, just, I, 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 it feels like this, this year is just a dream, you know, of just weirdness that just keeps getting weirder. And at some point I'll wake up. We all will. I don't know. I'm rambling. Let's get on to the remainder of this podcast. Just talking about uh, those remaining questions to ask uh, the experts. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, context, um, this is recommended questions to ask, uh, any sort of like, if you look like wanted to get into basketball, these are what Tim Ferriss recommended in the four hour chef, um, about how to break down that skill and understand what gets to its core essence. We covered the first question. What's the four week curriculum. Then these are some follow-up interesting questions. So I will answer them. What are the biggest mistakes and myths in 3D? What are the biggest wastes of time? So um, I covered this at the start, but essentially the myth that you need to learn everything. Um, you don't. Um, <laughs> you're just never going to cover everything in your lifetime. And every area of, of the 3D software, you're also not going to touch. Um, that's why I think it's a mistake that a lot of tutors, a lot of YouTube videos sometimes sort of almost go in chronological order. Like let's go through every feature of Blender one by one as if there was like an order, like an actual uh, reason for them being in that order other than just a developer put it there or something. Like it has to, yeah. Anyway, you have to sort of curate your approach to what it is you are pursuing and be okay with accepting that other parts of it you're never going to touch. Like there's there's parts of Blender that I have never, ever used before. Um, I mean, I've never really touched the, the Python console. I don't think I've ever touched the Logic thing, although that's gone. I think that was the old game engine. Um, oh, what, I mean, video sequence editor. I've really only used it to just drop in a set of frames and then make that a, a movie file. Never done editing. And that's okay, right? So don't, um, don't ever get... Like people, like I read comments and people are like, they see something on Reddit and they're like, oh my God, that thing is so cool. What did you make that with? And they're like, oh, I used this thing of Blender. Um, and they're like, oh, I didn't even know that existed. I've got so much to learn. I'll never learn it all. And it's like, that's all right. That's that's kind of life. Um, just be okay with that. So I'd, I'd say that's, um, oh, what are the biggest wastes of time? Um, yeah, what are the biggest wastes of time? Eh, yeah, I mean, I guess that could cover it. That could kind of be included in that question. That's kind of two questions in one, but anyways. All right, next question. What are your favorite instructional books or resources on the subject? If people had to teach themselves, what would you suggest they use? 
Um, I would forget books in regards to 3D. Um, 3D just moves way too fast. Um, even for for videos, right? Like I would uh, like the fast. Like I've uploaded vi videos, tutorials, and then the next release of Blender, they've moved a button, they've renamed it, or the hotkeys changed, and now the tutorial is outdated. Well, imagine if you had a book, right? And you got a book that was written even a year ago, half of the stuff in it might be changed in the newest version. Um, actually the fastest that I had a tutorial become outdated was two hours after I released a video. I saw in the uh, the latest version, the builder, whatever it was, um, they changed it. <laughs> and so that tutorial, uh, that tutorial was already outdated. So that's how fast things move in 3D. That said, there are theory books that uh, anything related to design and sort of art theory, composition, framing, um, uh, storytelling, narrative-driven art. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I was, the reason I'm looking around my room right now is there is a book that I own, which is an example of that. Oh, there it is. Framed Ink. This is one of those cases. Marcos Metu Mestre. Metu Mestre. Marcos Metu Mestre. No idea how to say that. But anyways, uh, this one. That's pretty good. That's a good example. Um, I've got a bunch of little books like this. Universal Principles of Design. It's not that relevant to 3D. Um, anything related to... I mean, really anything related to drawing. Um, the 2D form. Because I find that 2D... Um, 2D artists have less technical skills to fall on. They don't have, you know, uh, different light uh, lamp examples or or they don't know what global illumination is. They, all that stuff, retopology, all that kind of high frequency acidic stuff that is like this barrier that stops you from getting to the art stuff. 3D artists have to deal with that. So we have to deal with this immense uh, technological challenge 2D artists don't, and it's very honest when they make a mistake, which is why I kind of like 2D because it's very revealing when you get something right and when you get something wrong because it's just kind of the essence of what it is. Um, but anyways, because of that, they they make some um, some pretty timeless books that um, that still work. So I'm just looking on my library here: Expressive Anatomy for Comics and Narrative. Uh, there's something there. Uh, Drawn to Life, Volume 1 and 2, Disney Books, Figure Drawing, Design and Invention. That's actually a really good one. Uh, this one. I'm holding it up to the camera by Michael Hampton. That's good if you wanted to learn about anatomy and how the form is. Um, I mean, it's mostly about how to draw it, but that's, that's pretty good. But generally, 3D, I would, um, instead of books, going back to the question, what would I recommend? Forget the books, but just stick to YouTube. Um, you know, people often ask, like, what is what are you, what are the resources that you would recommend to to learn Blender? And I'm like, I just go to YouTube. If I have a question, if I have something I don't know, um, like I don't know, I'm working on a task. Like I was looking at like retopology. I'm like, how do I retopologize in Blender? I just go to YouTube and I type in <laughs> retopology Blender, and then I learn it. And then I'm like, how do I bake something? Bake Blender, and it's like it doesn't even need to be from a specific channel. If it's a technical thing you're learning, provided it gets the desired result, I mean, pretty much anyone can teach it. So, I mean, just use the tools that the great gods of Google have given us and, uh, and take advantage of the world of knowledge at your fingertips for free. 
um, and just and just switch it up. Just switch to switch to anything that uh, any other tutorial that you need at that present time. Um, yeah, that's my recommendation there. So, okay. Uh, what makes you different? Who trained or influenced you? Okay, so this was questions to give to like a, an expert, like a athlete or something, and you want to find out what what made you different. Um, I guess answering for that myself, I mean, what made me different? I mean, so I'm self-taught. That's kind of different to some people, although less so nowadays. I think a lot of people are being self-taught more. Um, something that has helped me immensely that I don't really talk about, um, but running my YouTube channel, running, creating tutorials for a living has forced me to understand things to a level that I wouldn't previously. Um, like say for example, right? You, uh, I said, can you, can you fix the sink, right? Can you fix the, the washer tap on the, on the, the, the kitchen sink tap or whatever, right? You might go like, um, okay, and you'll look up how to do it and you'll figure out how to how to do the sink thing or whatever um, and and how to you know move the ratchet or whatever to, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, but you know, get the thing off, get a plunger out, jiggy with it. I don't know what you do. But anyways, if then I said, uh, can you teach me how to do that? If even if you had just done it, you might have to think back in your head and, and go, um... What was the first steps? What was step number two? There was something with the washer, you know? You wouldn't know, right? You It wouldn't be crystal clear in your head. And the problem with that is that you feel like you've learned it, but then the next time you need to recall that information on another project, you haven't actually put it into the storage part of your brain, if we call it that, um, to be recalled later on. So you haven't learned it. And I, I realized this actually when I was doing that color space video, um, the secrets, the secret to photorealistic rendering, I think it was called. The one about the filmic lookup table, uh, uh, new color space for Blender. Um, I was asking questions on Twitter and people uh, people helped out. They came in like, oh, it's this. And when I asked a follow-up question, when something wasn't clear, uh, I, I was surprised to learn that a lot of people couldn't really explain why something was the way it was um, or or, or delve deeper into an area, which kind of said to me that, uh, yeah, it might be wrong. <laughs> Their understanding of it could be totally wrong because they are record basically just regurgitating some information that somebody else had told them. Like, what is, what is gamma, <laughs> right? I think I've said this before. What's gamma? Does anyone really know? Turns out that's actually a really complicated term that is overly confused shouldn't really be used for almost anything nowadays. But if you ask someone what is gamma, most people would regurgitate like, oh, it's like the to put the thing on the, the screen, it, it, the S curve with a 2.2 log thing, whatever. They might kind of regurgitate what they've learned. But what is it? Um, <laughs> how would you define it? A lot of people don't have a true understanding of what it is in order to get there. Um, and and so when you're making a tutorial, whenever I'm approaching a new topic for a video, I have to really go deep on it. Um, we're making a video at the moment, Bill Barber and I, Bill works for me, um, and he's my sort of guinea pig who's going out there and doing all these tests for me. But we've been making for over a year now, a video on render engine comparisons, in uh, <laughs> a speed comparison for render engines. So we're putting cycles against uh, Redshift, Octane, Arnold, uh, Corona, 
V-Ray. I think those are the six. So putting them against all of those and we're seeing which one is the fastest. And the deeper you go, the deeper the rabbit hole expands and it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. And we feel like we've got it. And then we do all the tests and then we go, hmm, we've this isn't working. Something's not right. I don't know if this result matches this thing. And then we go back and we realize, gosh, damn it. It's all wrong. Do it all over again. And there's so many ideas we had about what, why you could fairly test render engines and anyone who said you couldn't was just wrong to now realizing that every engine handles things so differently. They all have different terms. What, whatever's under the hood is buried and it's all mishmash of wires. And you're not supposed to know how it's working, but that could be hacking it to be slightly less realistic, but have a speed increase. So do you get points for realism, uh, less points for realism, but points for, for speed, but then it's, it's subjective. You know, it gets so deep. But anyways, it before that, if you'd asked me like, oh, um, which which render engine is the fastest? I might just rattle off a response, right? Um, but it's only through having to teach it that has um, helped me understand it. Anyways, my point is, if you were interested at all in starting a YouTube channel to make tutorials, it will be helpful not only for your career because people will watch those videos and then want to hire you, uh, but also it'll help you to really understand things. In fact, I'm actually at the moment considering making some, not videos, but even just like articles um, put them up on Medium or ArtStation, even if no one reads them, um, but about 2D, like how to shade in 2D. Because I know from, from doing my YouTube stuff that it will help me understand it in a way that mindlessly drawing, drawing after drawing after drawing will not. Um, so that's my advice. I mean, if, if you really want to take your learning and start to crystallize some of this knowledge, just try to explain it to someone else. If you think you know something and you've just learned something, put it down on paper in, in a, like an easy explanation that you could tell someone else and they could understand it. And that exercise alone will really, um, it'll, it'll lift your, uh, your education. Trust me. Okay. So that was a question that I rattled on for a long time. Uh, have you trained others to do what you do? Have they replicated your results? So that's an odd question for me, obviously. I've trained a few people to do what I do. Um, donut tutorial series just became my number one video on the channel, just surpassed the color video finally. Um, the best the best people that follow, that follow my tutorials and get a lot of results from it. Um, I mean, the, the easy answer is to say that they're driven, right? Um, and the, the reason I know that is because they're always uploading work. There's, there's a, just like a plethora, like a catalog of things that they have done and, and, and post. And it is very clear that they have resumed work daily and gotten back into it. Or if, if it's not daily, which it definitely best case should be, watch episode one of this podcast to talk about that. Um, even if it's not that, it is it is a regular cadence and they are hungry and they are coming back and they are doing it again and again and again. And here's the thing, they probably failed a lot and it was probably painful for them in certain areas, but their desire, their, their um, craving to reach a, a point of uh, sufficiency in the skill was, I, I think, a lot higher than a lot of people's. So those are the people that I think, I, I think excel. It's the ones that... Um, they just, they, they, they get a momentum going and it just kind of snowballs and it rolls. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really good to see. Like I saw one, gosh, it was on that, uh, blended donuts subreddit. Um, I think I posted it on, um, Twitter, 
but yeah, it was like some crazy thing, like a donut with arms and it was like a bunch of them. And there was a grass scene and trees and a bunch of donuts behind it. It was a lot going on. And he said he just started using Blender three months ago or something. And I was like, oh my goodness. Um, I don't know how you got there, man. That's really impressive. So, but uh, I don't know. That was, yeah. Have I trained others to achieve success? Yeah, I have. Um, <laughs> that was a short answer to that question, but I decided to riff on it. Who are the most impressive lesson known teachers? Now, this is an interesting question because, um, I mean, if you were to the point of this, you know, approaching athletes or just chefs or top professionals in their field, um, is that, uh, everyone can sort of rattle off, you know, the top, you know, if, if, if it's cooking, it would be, you know, Gordon Ramsay or that other guy, the naked chef, something Oliver. Jamie Oliver, that guy, you know, but if it's a lesser known teacher, it can kind of highlight some people who are teaching things in an interesting way that are getting different results from students and therefore it can reveal, yeah, it can sort of highlight somebody you might want to pursue in order to, to learn different workflows. So for me, I mean, most of these people aren't that unknown, but I'll still mention them. Um, Jama Jurabev, he was at, uh, he did a presentation at the Blender Conference 2018, I believe it was. Um, which is great. He talks about his work in the industry. So he's been working at ILM for many years. He's a concept artist by trade. And um, yeah, he's got a whole grease pencil workflow and he, a bunch of tutorials that teach people his workflow and creating concept art using 3D software. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think a great test of a teacher is when they have students who have achieved their results. And there's been a bunch of artists I've seen on ArtStation that reference his course I think it's on Lone Squared or he's got some on Gumroad. Um, but I would definitely check his stuff out. If you're into environments and you want to create awesome looking uh, environments, I mean, just, just follow concept artists. That would be someone to follow. Another one very similar to him is Jan Jurishel. <laughs> I should have learned to say it. John Urschel. John Urschel. I think it's Europe. He's European. I don't know how to say it, but he is very similar to Jama. He's a concept artist who has moved to Blender, like a lot of concept artists have, because they've realized like, hey, you can do a lot with 3D. You don't have to uh, be locked into a 2D canvas when you finish something. You can move their camera around and change the lighting, and isn't that great? So, uh, and it's actually really interesting watching a concept artist pick up a tool um, after they've mastered another skill, they just excel at it straight away. Like their work is immediately better. Like, cause they've already, they know the lighting, they know the color, they know design, uh, they know like shape language and how to make interesting, like an interesting layout. And so they don't have to go through the, the pains that a lot of 3D artists do. So their technical skills might be a little rough around the edges. Like, I don't know, the bump mappings are inverted or, or I don't know, there's not enough detail on this texture or something like that. But design wise, it's, it's amazing. Anyways, um, another one, you probably already know it, not really that lesser known, but Ian Hubert, um, his VFX tutorials on his channel, they're very fast paced, but they, they show, I think that you don't need to do a bunch of stuff to get, um, you don't have to be perfect often to get a, uh, possible result, right? Um, so he actually, I mean, he doesn't really talk about it, but I mean, he worked, he was the director of Tears of Steel, the Blender movie, and he was also, um, oh, what's that movie? Prospect? I think it is Prospect. I'm going to make sure I get this right. But it's like an indie 
sci-fi movie. Prospect sci-fi. Yeah, it's called Prospect. So it came out in 2018, 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and it's set on a planet, whatever. Um, it, it, it's fairly low budget. He was the pretty much the only VFX artist on that entire movie. And he he did the entire, the all the VFX for it. The spaceships, the everything that was on the planet, the little uh, aura things, the everything. He did the entire VFX himself as a single, like one man band, which is insane. And he should definitely talk about more in his videos. Um, I only learned it because I messaged him on Twitter and we were talking. Um, but his, to, to do that, you can't be a perfectionist. You can't like, all right, I got to spend like four months rigging and making sure that this spaceship looks good from every angle. It's like, bam, I've got like two days to do this. How could I pull this off in two days? Well, I got to like make a bunch of big shapes, big design decisions. I got to add what looks like detail, but is a bunch of greeble, but it's hidden because it's in the background. So it kind of works. So his approach in his tutorials, I think is kind of interesting because it's a, it's a good reminder that sometimes 3D artists uh, overanalyze what, what they're trying to do and, and, and over, overthink things. So, um, and then sculpting, flip normals. Um, you probably already know about them already. They're sort of, I guess, the top ZBrush channel. Um, two guys met them, uh, Henning, Henning and Morton, uh, Scandinavian fellas, Denmark and Sweden, I think they're from, but living in Japan, although I think they moved. Anyways. Point is, is they're, um, they're from the industry. So they they worked at MPC in London as creature artists. Um, actually visited them um, in London. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, their approach, you, you know that they are teaching the right thing, right? Because they're professionals. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I, I would check that out. And then as for other lesser known teachers, I mean, anyone, if you look at a lot of pro artists on ArtStation, you often find they have a gum road where they are teaching tutorials. And they're selling things for like an abysmally small price. I mean, guys, you can raise the prices now. You don't have to keep selling things for $2. Um, I know people will be mad at me for saying that, but like it, it cheapens it. It's like, I look at it and I'm like, you're going to teach the entire ZBrush workflow for $2. Is it worth it? Uh, you yeah. know, um, and then you watch it and it's amazing. Um, but like, guys, come on, you, you don't, artists are so afraid of like putting a price on something that it's actually worth like it's not worth $2, it's worth like at least 50, come on. Um, but anyways, uh, so like I found one, Raf Grazetti, he's like one of the top character artists in the world. He's got like an entire Gumroad course on sculpting a character that I've been following. It's really good, 20 bucks. Um, and, he, and I think it includes the entire body as well. It's like the whole the whole character from the face, the nose, the lips, everything walks, walks through his workflow, which is incredible. So uh, Gumroad, Gumroad as a teacher is, is a good one. All right, only two questions left because this episode's going on a bit. Hope it's useful. Who do you know that's good at 3D but shouldn't be inexperienced or unorthodox style? Um, yeah, uh, I think I kind of mentioned it, but anyone who's already good at another medium. Um, so concept artists, obviously, uh, but photographers as well. Um, they just basically outperform 3D artists in, in a lot of ways when they start um, because they already have have that prior knowledge, that kind of, that years of, of buildup of expertise. That means that when they jump into 3D, they already know how to frame. They know they know what, what good lighting is. Um, yeah, I've just seen some people that have um, 
yeah, like the, like photographers or something on, on Instagram, and they're like, oh, you know, I'm uh, I'm a photographer and I've just been learning 3D. I'm just sort of dabbling in it, and I look at their work and it's you know mostly photography, and they've just started getting into 3D and doing some some things. And the lighting is amazing, the rendering is amazing, the color grading is amazing, because um, they've already got that side of it. So it's really interesting. Um, those people, yeah. Basically, if you've mastered another skill, um, it, it usually transfers over. I mean, parts of it, obviously, not the technical stuff, but the design and everything else. All right. And then the final question, who are the most unorthodox artists? Why? What do you think of them? So similar, I guess, to the impressive lesser known teachers. Um, some of them are repeating. The first one is Ian Hubert. Um, so why is he an unorthodox artist? So he has uh, kind of controlled speed and it's it's a methodical use of time to do the minimum required to get a effective result, right? He, he doesn't seem to put even a second more into a task if it doesn't require it. Um, I mean, obviously that's a, I'm sure there are assets that are in the background that didn't need to be that detailed, but his, his use of his time seems very, very effective. So if you watched his workflow, you might think like, oh my gosh, he just kind of like goes in there and just throws stuff around and like, yes, but it's, it's, it's much like when you see one of those painters on TikTok or Instagram or something and they're like standing on the street and they got this one brush and they go, and then like one stroke, they make this masterpiece kind of thing. It looks simple, but that's kind of the point. It's, it's, it's 20 years or whatever that went into it to know how to do it to make it look as simple as it was. So in Ian's approach, you could actually kind of, um, if you were a beginner, um, develop a lazy bad habit by thinking that you can just be lazy and just kind of throw stuff around and cheat and do things in a rough manner for everything and if it, it to come out well. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of the, the bad extreme of it. But his his workflow I find to be yeah, just a good reminder um, that, yeah, you you can and should use your time effectively. Because I have a habit myself of, of um, making every asset look perfect from every angle. And then it's just going to sit in the background. I'm like, what's the point of that? Um, because then the project took three months to create instead of two weeks, right? And you could have gotten the same result. So, um, yeah, it's I, 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 I've kind of riffed on that a lot. Uh, next, Beeple. So why, why is he unorthodox? Um, so he is, I guess, similar in, in, in many ways to Ian. Um, he doesn't overanalyze things. So um, yeah, it was like a video. He went to Corridor Digital's studio and was talking about what he was doing. He's saying like, it doesn't have to be perfect what you're doing. It doesn't have to be some special thing. You can just make something stupid, right? And you can see that in his work. He has just this stupid approach to art that you look at and you go like, come on, what, what is the point of that? Why would you make, a, I don't know, Shrek morphed into Donald Trump uh, or something or whatever weird, and like drinking from the teat of sci-fi Borg uh, Hillary Clinton. He's got a bunch of political stuff on there. Um, but what, I mean, what he's just having fun. He doesn't care. He's just throwing stuff out there and his volume of work, the amount of work he creates, um, it stands to reason that some of those pieces are going to stand out. And, uh, yeah, I mean, some of the ideas just, just hit really well and, and they come out and a lot of them don't, but that's understandable doing one render every single day. Um, 
Yeah, I, I've come to respect it. I, I used to kind of think his artwork looked a little lazy. Um, and it is in some ways. It, it, it It's rushed and it could be better um, technically. But it, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> He's creating actual artwork. He's not a technical artist. He's creating ideas and narratives and pushing ideas. Yeah, like political ideas. I mean, that's the other really cool thing about his art is he deliberately offends people. He does not care if you don't like the themes of his artwork. He doesn't entertain anyone in the comments who gets mad at him for his... I mean, he did one recently, which was um, the one that he sold for $66,000 or something. And it was like um, a piece of artwork that will change depending on who wins the US election. And it was like, uh, if Donald Trump wins, it was like Donald Trump like walking as like a, a, a minotaur, like this sort of demon, like walking around. And then, um, oh, is, this, is the focal of this camera off? No, anyway. Um, and then, uh, yeah, like fire and hell all around him. And then you swipe and then it was like, if Joe Biden wins and it was like a peaceful utopia with Donald Trump dead in the background and spray painted on him like fat loser and stuff like that. Incredibly offensive work, right? Um, that's the point of it. I mean, you don't have to question and ask who are you going to vote for. You know what his beliefs are and what he thinks of a certain person. Um, and I wouldn't do that artwork myself, right? But I respect, I respect the artistic integrity to stick to what you want to do and not be like shy, right? And think, oh, I don't know if I want to put this out there. What do people think? Like I've got some ideas in my head that I want to put into an art piece, but I I know people will really hate it. And I'm kind of like, I'm like standing on the ledge. I'm like, should I jump? What should I do? <laughs> he doesn't care. He just goes for it. And it's it's funny to watch, um, even though I would disagree with, you know, half the things he makes. That's kind of, that. that's how you get great art is going through just ideas and um, and letting people express themselves, as I've talked about, as nauseam. All right. Uh, three other artists that are unorthodox that I like. Uh, Julian Casper. So he is a blender artist. He worked on Spring. He's, uh, I actually like his his work, his personal work on uh, on ArtStation. He's got a really, um, yeah, his sculpts have like really nice simplified exaggerated forms and really interesting lighting, very simple, just kind of the bare elements. And um, yeah, he did like a bunch for Sculpt January or something. Um, I feel like there's a an art theme for every month now. November, Sculpt January, uh, Inktober. What else is there? It's probably something for February, March. Yeah, I don't know. We'll make one for Polygon. We'll call it Polygon April. You just have to buy our shit and put it in your renters. <laughs> oh, that's the worst when like a corporate company comes out and tries to join in a trend and goes like, we'll make our own little hashtag and go viral. And it doesn't work and it's very sad. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, so I like his stuff. Um, uh, yeah, you can check him out. Julian Casper. Uh, two other artists, Vitaly Bolgarov. So he is uh, like the top hard surface modeler person in the world. And um, what makes him different is I think his mastery of both the design and the technical. So he's doing something which is exceedingly technical which is like a lot of Boolean operations, hard surface, sculpting hard surface in ZBrush sometimes, blending it with organic forms occasionally. 
Um, but kind of this, yeah, it does like quadrupeds, robots, just the most insane technical thing. That's a really technical thing to do is, um, yeah, all that Boolean stuff with like rounded forms in it and everything. Really, really hard to do. Um, so he's got a handle on that, but he also has a really good handle on uh, on design, um, shape language, um, uh, what's it called? Big, medium, small details. Um, uh, what else? How many other buzzwords can I throw at you? He's got a really great handle on that. So the fusing of those two things, I think, um, has, uh, has made him one of the top artists in the world because most people are one or the other. You'll find a lot of 2D artists that can do this technical, blocky, hard surface stuff, but it's 2D because they can't understand 3D. They tried it once and it's too hard and it's confusing and they don't want to. He's figured that out. He's got this insane 3D knowledge and then he's also got this uh, incredible uh, design knowledge as well. And then the final one, Jama Jurabave, as I mentioned, as a teacher, he's also, just as an artist, um, I think he's on, what, what makes him unorthodox and great is uh, he's, kind of an early adopter of technology. Uh, a lot of concept artists are very shy to 3D. In fact, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, a lot of concept artists, for one, almost none of them used 3D software. Um, and they they hated it. They said that like the, the software got in the way of the work that they did because you can't work fast. You have to keep dealing with menus and pushing buttons and, oh, it's too confusing. And so they just kind of like, no, I'm going to stick to Photoshop and you guys do what you want to do, but I'm going to do this. Um, a, Jama was one of the first artists I know, concept artists that said like, um, no, Blender is really cool. And you should use it because it has all these extra advantages. You don't have to, you know, if the director then asks you to change the camera angle, you don't have to redraw it. You can change the camera angle because it's a 3D scene. Uh, if it needs to be relit, if it needs to have any other changes, you have so much more flexible workflow when you deal with 3D. Um, so he he was like an early adopter in the concept art to sort of jump into Blender and use grease pencil to sketch it out. And because he wasn't happy with a lot of the tools um, that he wanted in Blender. Um, he's also like hired a developer, I think, to build. Um, I just saw like a, a few add-ons that he's got uh, to do sort of like quick curves and I think quick box modeling and things to sort of rapidly throw ideas into a frame. Doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to be whatever, but just kind of rapidly build things. Um, so he's he's harnessing the technology to get to the desired creative result. I think he's doing that quite well. Um, he's also... He's just got a company called Big Medium Small. And uh, I think he's hiring artists to make 3D assets that are at the level of detail that he wants for his concept pieces. So I think he's got two packs so far, one on like medieval knights, and they're like really high detailed medieval knights with like staves and things. And then he's also got one recently on like apocalypse soldiers in like hazmat gear and tanks and things like that for like apocalypse scenes. Um, so yeah, he's he's really a, another one of those artists who's got a handle on both the design and the technical and isn't afraid to dabble and get uncomfortable because he knows that the 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 rainbow at the what's it called? The bag of gold at the end of the rainbow is worth dealing with the the technical challenges. So that's what kind of makes him unorthodox and stands out there. Um, but those are kind of just the people I know. I mean, a lot of those are kind of top artists in the world and that's kind of why they stand out. 
but there's, you know, um, I'm sure hundreds of little known artists that we don't even know about yet, but will one day be amazing and be well known because uh, they're doing things in a different way that I don't know right now. And maybe that's you watching this right now. So don't lose hope. Um, anyways, that was it for this episode. Next episode, I thought I would do the same set of questions, but around 2D because yeah, I've spent two-ish years learning 2D. And because of that, I have a fresh knowledge of how to learn 2D today, because there's a bunch of ideas and techniques which are taught in 2D, which I think are kind of a waste of time and things that aren't emphasized enough that I think are important. And I do get asked a lot actually through Twitter and Instagram, um, how did you learn 2D? What could you, what would you recommend today? So I thought I'd do a video a podcast episode on that. So um, subscribe if you want to listen to that one again. And for the next next episode, um, I hope to answer your questions. So if you have questions, send it to blunderguru.com forward slash podcast question. Type that into your browser. You'll get a Dropbox folder there. And I want you to upload a video question. It says video question on the page, but people open up a notepad text file and they type in a text and they send me a text file. I'm not going to read it. It has to be a video because it's going to be on a podcast and I, I want to be able to see it and I want to be able to hear it. So all you need to do is take out your phone. You don't need a webcam and as professional gear or anything. You take out your phone, selfie mode, record it, upload it from your phone. It takes five seconds um, or maybe a minute or two, but do that. And, uh, and I hope to answer some interesting questions on the, uh, the next podcast episode. Thanks guys. Bye.